Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 2444, 2,444 times we have now, over almost 11 years, gotten together to do an episode of the Survival Podcast and talk about ways that we can live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And over those 11 years, we've talked an awful lot about many subjects, and one subject that has to be in the top three of subjects is growing your own food. Today we're going to talk to you about growing your own food in a way that we've mentioned in passing, but we've never dug into before, because frankly, I've never done it, and I generally don't talk about things that I haven't done too much. I will be doing it uh, this season, and when you hear today's interview, you will have no doubt why I'm going to give it a try. It is called Straw Bale Gardening, and I know what you're thinking. I've seen this somewhere. I've, I've heard of this before, whatever. We have the man himself, Joel Karsten who has been doing this for not one decade, like I've been doing 2SP, not two, but almost three decades, over 28 years. Joel has been doing this method of gardening and evangelizing it to people. And about the second half of that 30 years is where it's really started to take off. But this is the guy that was the first guy that you know started doing it and making it a thing. And he's going to come on to us today. He's going to talk about using the straw, the straw bell garden method and how you can do this in your own backyard, but how he's actually taught people to do do it in places like remote areas of Cambodia where growing food in the ground in traditional ways isn't really an option because of the monsoon season floods everything out and destroys everything. He's actually he's going to outline for you today a method that they're using in Cambodia that the next time I'm teaching a permaculture course, it will be one of the techniques that I teach. Uh, you know me. When you do something like that, you've blown me away. Uh, I'm going to be putting some of these beds in my quail aviary. You'll hear us talk about that and trialing his stuff. Up front, I'll tell you. Guess what? Hmm. Joel Kirsten, on my show, has a website, sells books and sells products to help inoculate your bales. What do you think I've gone and done for you? Got you an MSB discount, so you'll hear about that today, too. And it's a good one. How much? You'll find out when we tell you about it toward the end of the interview. Before I get Joel on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Harvest Eating. Hey, if you're going to grow all that great food, don't you think you should know how to cook it and make it really good? You know, last night we took out some uh, salmon. I'll tell you where I got that from in a little bit. And then a bunch of stuff that I grew out in my wicking beds. And I made two plates of food. I took a picture of one of them. It was so pretty I put it on Facebook. And I said, you know, this is what I was talking about in yesterday's show, about cooking for yourself, paying for itself in spades and saving money. And I said, you know, these plates would be $20 a piece. And I had probably 7 bucks in the two of them combined. Well, not all, but some of the techniques that I've learned to cook amazing meals like that, I've learned from Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. And I can tell you right now, I use his seasonings in my household on a weekly basis. HarvestEating.com, good dude. He's part of our expert council. He's been working with us for about eight years now. And he does a discount for MSB. So check it out, harvesteating.com. Next up, where did I get the salmon? You ready? Did you know that you can get salmon from ButcherBox? And let me tell you, I have been a big fan of ButcherBox since we brought them on. Pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef. But I was a little skeptical with the salmon. 
because we've all bought salmon from the store and it's kind of that weak sauce orange color instead of that deep red color and it's you know that just not that great of a product this stuff was fantastic i never even thought of seafood from butcher box until i had a special a couple months ago and i said yeah i'll add that butcher box has got it all if you can send me a box of meat and i don't bitch about it then you're doing something right that's butcher box and they also do a discount for msb members And that can pretty much give you free bacon for life, or you can figure out however you want to use it. But I like free bacon. You will, too. Check out ButcherBox.com to learn more. With that, let's get on into it with Joel here, uh, talking about straw bale gardening. So with that, hey, Joel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great hey, to be here. I am really glad to have you on. I've been aware of you and of this technique for, a, for quite a while. It's something just in my circles that would pop up time to time. I was really excited when I saw your guest application come up, and we're here to talk to people today about straw bale gardening. Can we start off just right from the beginning here? What, what exactly is a straw bale garden? Can you give us the basics and like where sure. this idea came from? Absolutely. Um, it's called straw bale gardening because that's what I first started with were bales of straw, oat straw, what is what we had on the farm. But you can actually use any type of straw or hay or grass. You can actually compress any kind of organic material into a bale. That's really the ticket is it's got to be compressed into a bale form. And then what we're doing during this process is we're very quickly over a two-week period, we're going to treat that bale and actually treat the bacteria inside that bale by adding some nitrogen. You can do this organically or with traditional fertilizers and water, and that fires up those bacteria. They colonize the bale, and then they begin quickly after two weeks to convert that straw into soil or biologically uh, the same characteristics as soil. It won't look quite like soil inside the bale yet. But at that point, as soon as the bales cool off a little bit, they'll get real hot during that conditioning period. Then when they cool down, you can plant right into the bale. Um, I know that seems strange, and people will drive by and give you a goofy look when they see tomatoes growing out of your straw bales in your yard. But the important thing to remember, nothing will grow in just plain old straw. So don't just go get a bale and plant it. you got to condition it first for that two weeks, and the inside becomes early-stage soil. And that's really what we're at. So really, anything that will decompose that's put inside of that bale and then compressed like that, that helps Uh, speed up the decomposition process. Anything will work for this. So it doesn't have to be just straw. But I started doing it many years ago. I, I joke that you've, you've heard about it for a while, but I've been doing this for 28 years. And the first 14 years, nobody cared. <laughs> And then the last 14 years, people can't get enough of it. So it's really been um, a, a great adventure for me through the last 28 years. And now it's spread all over the world. So it's become popular. Now, I've seen some people do it where, like, you know, when they're going to plant or transplant into it or they kind of pull the straw open a little bit and they put in, like, a handful of soil or compost or something. So you're saying that as long as we get the bale condition, that's not actually necessary? It's not. The, the reason I, only reason I would recommend using any kind of potting mix um, in your straw bale garden is to help. Like, if you've got a pot, you pull a tomato out of a pot and you've got a whole bunch of exposed roots and you make a crack in that bale and you can't get those exposed roots covered up, then you could put a handful of that potting mix around it. Um, but you really don't need it because the bale will become the media, the inside of the bale. If you're doing seeds on top of the bales, then you're going to use potting mix to make a little bit of a seed bed because the real, especially the real tiny seeds like carrots will easily fall down into the crack bale. Oh, so if we make a nice, make a nice layer on top, just a half an inch or so, 
and then put your seeds in that. Bigger seeds, you know, peas and beans that will that are big enough that they can hold their own position inside the bale. Those I just take my finger and shove them down into the bale, and they do just fine. But the tiny seeds, you do need to make a bit of a seed bed. But don't use soil. You know, you got to help her. Helping you, they they think they're going to help you. They go over to the garden, they take a shovel of soil and throw on top of the bales. Now you've just introduced weed seeds again, and you've just introduced potentially disease, you know, born in that soil or insects born in that soil. So we want to avoid our traditional topsoil, so we can avoid all the potential lingering diseases and insects that might with that. And just buy a bag of you know planting mix at the garden center. That won't actually have any soil in it. It'll it'll look black like soil, but it's just decomposed wood and other things. It's a soilless planting mix is really what you're looking for. Um, at, you know, one bag will do 10, 15 bales, so okay. it doesn't take very much. Um, why would people want to do this over traditional gardening? You know, I grew up, we had about a quarter yeah. acre garden. You go out, you dig up rows, you plant your plants, and now we're dragging bales around. What, what are some of the advantages yeah. here? Oh, there's a whole bunch of them, but the number one thing, no weeding. You'll go the whole summer and you won't pull any weeds. And I'm not exaggerating. You can we do a huge social media presence, and you know on social media, if you lie, you're going to get called out. Oh, big and time! People on social <laughs> social media will tell you. Read our Facebook pages and stuff. You know, especially in the fall when they're when it's harvest time, they'll say. I can't believe I didn't start doing this 20 years ago. I haven't pulled a weed all summer. This is the greatest garden ever. I'll never go back to planting in the soil. And that's not me. That's my people, you know, my straw bale gardeners online that, that will say that. So that's the big one. There are lots of peripheral advantages. You don't have to bend over as much. So if you have any type of a physical disability, inability to get down on the ground, this is a great way to do that. Anybody that uses a chair to get around wheelchairs is a great way for them. For seniors, you know, they don't have to bend over as much. One of the biggest unforeseen, you can't just see by looking at the garden, advantages, especially if you're in the north, but this also is for people in the south, is that you can plant your garden earlier, much earlier, because of the warmth that's being emitted from bale during the conditioning period. So I'm up here in Minnesota where it's freezing cold. We usually can't plant until late May is our planting time. But with a straw bale garden, I'll be conditioning mid-April, and I'll plant the beginning of May. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal. 20 days, 15 days early, doesn't seem like a lot. But when you measure the sun intensity early in the spring, and you get a 15-day head start on your garden, that is a world of difference in the long run for that garden. It allows us to produce crops that we normally would never be able to. And I, I always joke that with something with a 120-day you know, growth cycle, 20 days is a lot. Right. That's huge. It's a lot. And up, up here, that's the difference between frost and no frost, you know, and getting something out of your garden and not. But I always joke with people that if you plant a straw bale garden, you'll always be the first one on your block with ripe tomatoes. Mm. And, of course, that, that means one. Can you uh, talk a little bit? You mentioned the, the, the concept of disease. So one of the problems we yeah. fight constantly in the South with everybody's favorite, favorite vegetable is a tomato, I think. Yep, 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 yep. Um, at least to grow. I think even people that don't like tomatoes, they grow them to give them to other people, um, <laughs> is blight. And blight yep. is soil-borne fungal disease. Yep. And one of the reasons we have so much issue with it in places like Texas and Florida is, it does, like up north, a lot of that soil-borne fungus, when it get, you get your hard freezes, it gets knocked back, killed, etc. Where here, it doesn't. So have you noticed right. that, like, specifically blight uh, being less prevalent in a straw bale than in a raised bed or something like that? Absolute number one reason a lot of 
gardeners turn to strawbell gardening to begin with is mm. tomato blight. And so it definitely is a solution for tomato blight. Now, there's a couple key things. Um, the blight, like you say, lingers in the bale. So what you don't want to do is get your bales all prepped and ready, and then you go to the garden center and you come home with your little transplants, and you set them in the cardboard box next to the bale, and they tip over and they touch the soil. Because mm. as soon as that plant touches the soil and gets soil on its leaves, more than likely the spores that are harbored in that soil are now already on the plant. So you right. got to not, it's not a sterile shield like you would see in an operating room. We don't have to be that careful about it. But you just want to be really careful with your tomatoes that you never contact the soil, with whether that be your hands or your pruners or whatever, and then touch your tomato because that's how you spread it. People that use gardening gloves, I tell them, if you're going to garden with tomatoes and you're trying to prevent disease, throw out those gardening gloves because your gardening gloves have touched the soil. And more than likely, there's spores in the, in the threads in the cloth of those gardening gloves and you're going to touch your tomato and you're going to spread it. Same thing with dirt under your fingernails. Now I'm a, I'm a farm boy. It doesn't bother me at all from, you know, having dirt under my fingernails. But if you have dirt under your fingernails, some of that dirt from your garden probably has septoria or verticillium spores in it. And when you touch your tomatoes, that's a good way to spread it. So you want to make sure that you maintain somewhat of a sterile field whenever you're touching that tomato plant. And you'll see, you can go the whole summer, and not have any infestation problems with blight. It's particularly a problem with people who have small gardens because they can't rotate crops at all. You know, you can't move things around. If you only have a tiny little garden to garden, you know, there's nowhere to go. So if you cover that area that's already infested with straw bales, and then you got to put some wood chips or something in between the rows so that, you know, you just avoid any contact with that soil, you will be amazed at the difference. I have uh, several pictures I got from a guy in South Carolina that said, my tomatoes were so tall, he said the sheriff came by and saw the brakes and backed up. And he came in to look at these to make sure they were really tomatoes. He'd never seen anything that tall. <laughs> so I guess apparently down there, he said, you know, it was really hard to get really big, tall tomatoes that are pure green because they get the blight so bad. Yep. And everybody that, that saw them couldn't believe it because they'd never seen a tomato look that good in this area where, where he was sending me pictures from. So. Um, so, you know, I have tons of stories about that kind of thing, but in general, you're absolutely right. Tomato blight, tomatoes is the number one vegetable. Um, I tell people you're going to have so many tomatoes when you straw bell garden, you'll be going to church looking for unlocked doors in the parking lot to throw in bags of tomatoes. <laughs> That's how many extra ones you're going to have. Well, um, so I'll tell you, you got me then. I'll, I'll, I'll set a few up this season just to see because I, I actually have pretty good luck with them early. It's about mid-season I get hit. I do all my stuff right now with wicking beds. Um, but okay. I've gone to growing nothing but like cherry tomatoes and things like that just because I get better results. And it's frustrating. Where I grew up in Pennsylvania in like the heart of some of the most fertile soil on the planet, you could almost just go outside and throw a tomato down on the ground. <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and then you came back in like two and a half months and there was tomatoes on a, on a vine. Yep. And I got here and I'm like, ah, I know how to grow tomatoes. And it was, it was, it's been a struggle. I've gotten okay with it, but. I'll I'll try just for that alone. Yeah. Let's talk about um, what other crops we can grow. And before we even do okay. that, let's back up. My audience is hugely into nutrient density. That's that's sure. a big deal. So now we're Brick, growing in straw, test. right? Yes, yes. Yep. So what is the nutrient okay. like? You know, let's say I grow well, my spinach in one of my deeply right. composted beautiful wicking beds and now i'm going to grow that same plant in a straw bale well here's the here's the biology we're not growing in straw 
were growing in very recently decomposed straw. So the bacteria that makes soil, that makes organic material, that breaks down organic material, has done its job inside of this bale. So where do the nutrients come from that are in that bale that are being absorbed? They come from the wheat plant that last year, you know, grew the wheat stalk out in the middle of the farmer's field. And through that root that the wheat put out into the soil, it took up nitrogen, potassium, molybdenum, zinc, calcium, iron, manganese, all the micro and macronutrients that that wheat needed to grow. So we take a few seeds off and send those to market, right? Then we bale up the stalks. Well, those molecules that made up the cells didn't disappear. They're still there. Now we go through the deconstruction process. So instead of building cells last year with these molecules, now we're going to deconstruct those cells and make those molecules available once again inside the bale. And that's where Mother Nature comes in. Insects, worms, fungi, you'll see mushrooms grow on the bales. Mold will grow on the bales. And then the heavy lifter of all of those is the one that's so small you can't see it, bacteria. And bacteria, what does the final breaking down of those cells through this metabolic process. It's kind of like they eat the straw, but it's not really consumption like you and I would think of. It sort of dissolves the cells, and those bacteria will colonize inside the bale because they're busy consuming this, these stalks of straw. Now, the bacteria, when they colonize, will heat up. And once they completely colonize the bale, you'll see that take the temperature of that bale, the temperature will drop. At that point, these bacteria have begun to die. And when they die, their little bacteria bodies explode. And inside that endoplasm comes all of these little nutrients that you and I would recognize. Nitrogen, phosphorus, molybdenum, zinc, calcium, iron, manganese. All these nutrients that our plant roots need to absorb. So all we're doing is cutting out the middleman. You know, you'll, you'll have a compost pile. So you'll compost your leaves and your everything. And then you take the compost and put it on the soil. And then you plant your plants. And then the plants absorb nutrients from that compost that's breaking down. All we're doing is intercepting that compost before someone has had time to put it on the soil and, and do it that way. So you are planting in soil. It's just sort of a shortcut to that process. So your BRICS tests that you take on your tomatoes or your spinach or whatever to, to test nutrient levels will be absolutely indistinguishable from traditional gardening. They might have even be a little bit better because we have a, a more consistent um, – moisture content in that bale. And moisture content, and especially consistency of moisture, is really important for many vegetables. good example is the spinach. Another good example is an herb like basil. If you look at a basil leaf, that leaf is, you know, 90% of that leaf is moisture, water. In a straw bale garden, I get the biggest basil leaves that are as big as your hand because we have consistency of moisture. Remember that, that big cube bale of straw? Straw's main job in agriculture is to suck up and hold moisture. That's why people use it for, you know, bedding for cattle and horses and pigs and whatever, because it absorbs all the moisture. And then you can go clean out the pen and put all that dirty straw and wet straw and haul it to the field. So it's like a diaper, right? It absorbs that moisture. That's what it's doing there in your garden as well. You can put six gallons of water on there and it'll absorb those five to six gallons and hold that moisture inside. So in the cold bale, the outside might feel dry. But the core of that bale has consistent moisture, which vegetables love. And that tends to make their their nutrient content higher, especially a plant that is a high water user. You'll see all of your you know, muskmelons and watermelons and cucumbers is another really good example. Anything that has a really high water content just loves the straw bale garden. Awesome. It makes sense. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're, you're growing in a compost heap. 
It's just a, a slow, yes. controlled breakdown. Because I think everybody that's right. ever composted at some point has thrown, like, you know, kind of a nasty butternut squash that wasn't worth doing in there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you come out, like, five days later, and there's this vine. You're like, well, let's see what happens. And damn if that one doesn't grow up a pine tree 20 one. feet, right? Yeah. Because yep. it's – and I think it's because it's in the active process of the breakdown. Because that's, right. that's exactly. why mulching works, right? Because we put mulch on the exactly. soil, and it's it's got that nitrogen-carbon exchange going on in that right. thin layer. And, of course, everybody freaks out. Oh, my God, you mulch it. It's going to rob the nitrogen. And I've been fighting yep. that for almost as long as you've been doing this. Um, yep. But, yeah, that makes sense because you're in that active breakdown. In some ways, it's it's kind of like culture because you've got this it's, wood core that's exactly. being broken down. And the heat mm -hmm. intrigues me because... To me, if you threw that sucker in a greenhouse or you threw a row cover over it um, in that season extension model in the beginning, that seems like it would do a lot as well to even take that further. We have this really cool thing I've been working on for the last couple of years, and this year was my first time demoing it at some uh, lawn and home and garden shows that I do talks at. And it is a very small seven foot by eight foot greenhouse. And it's just a spring greenhouse. It's for us Northerners that, you know, we, we got to get out of the, you know, the cold. Just six weeks earlier, we can start some seeds outside and things if you have a tiny greenhouse. And I heat that greenhouse with bales of straw, doing exactly what you're talking about. I begin the conditioning process. The bales get hot. They'll get 130, 140 degrees inside the bale. And six bales will keep this little seven-foot by eight-foot greenhouse. It's made out of cattle panels, real simple little concept, one thin layer of plastic. Um, it will keep that warm enough that I can start seeds and other things outside in that greenhouse. I put seed trays on top of the bales. I get bottom heat. So, And people have – now I've been talking about it for a couple of years, so people have started to do it. Um, you know, it's way for under 100 bucks. Somebody can start their own greenhouse outside. So That's awesome. Works man. out good. Let's talk about the different crops we can grow. I mean, tomatoes sure. or something that have blight. What about potatoes? Right. You know, what about yep. – All you know, cucumber you'd mentioned. What, what can we grow? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we could go through a whole list because you can grow essentially anything. Now, there's a couple things I want to talk about that you shouldn't attempt to grow. Don't grow sweet corn in a straw bale garden. That's one crop that, you know, they, it will grow just fine, but you only get about three stalks of corn. The roots are huge. You know, it's just not economical. It'll probably fall over in a good wind. Right. Yeah, it's hard to keep them up. You know, you'd, you'd have to have a trellis above it and really wire them up. Um, another couple of crops are anything that's a perennial type vegetable, like rhubarb and asparagus come back for us year, year after year after year from the roots. And in three years, remember, there will be nothing left of that bale but a hump of soil in your garden, and that's it. So now you, you would have asparagus growing on top of a hump, and that, that would be hard to water, et cetera. So I don't recommend planting any, you know, long-term perennial type vegetables or you know, raspberries, that kind of thing in the straw bales. You could use a, a bale to get a patch established, but if you're going to do that, then I would suggest you bury part of the bale, you know, bury a third of the bale or so. So that when, it, when it does decompose, it's level with the rest of the soil. Okay. So it allows you to, to water. Other than that, you can grow absolutely anything. Now, first year bale versus second year bale. First year bales are going to get hot because they're undergoing decomposition. So they like, uh, you know, crops, Like, that like warm roots, all your warm season stuff. I'm talking about squash and cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers. Those love the first year bales. When the bale is the second season, now it's broken down significantly inside, but you still have a bale there. You know, you still have somewhat of a shape. It's kind of humped, slumped over a little bit. Sometimes you got to reconnoiter them a little bit, squeeze two bales into one and put some chicken wire around them, but then plant that second 
year bale with all your root crops. So all of your potatoes and uh, carrot eats and everything go in that second year bale to get the best performance. Mm. And remember, those second year bales are not going to heat up the second year. It's just ready to plant right out of right out. Go. You might need to add a little bit of nitrogen just because there's been some leaching over the winter, lots of rain, and you're. It's kind of like you're in a in a high drainage raised bed bale. So you're going to get if you overwater, if it rains a ton, you're going to get some leaching of your soluble nutrients, things like nitrogen, calcium. So you need to watch that. And if your plants show signs of blossom end rot, make sure you're you know moderating your moisture. Don't overwater is the big thing. It's the number one mistake. Strawbell gardeners make their first time is they overwater their bales. Um, and that's, you know, it, it usually it doesn't hurt the garden in the long run because they'll see that there's a lack of nutrients and then they fertilize. But if you, if you monitor your watering, right, you end up never having to fertilize the garden because it just, you know, the, the nutrients are there if you, as long as you don't flush them out um, of the, so you can really plant anything from anything you would grow in your normal soil garden Grows in there. A couple of quick exceptions. I haven't had great luck with rosemary. It doesn't seem to do well. It will persist, but it doesn't thrive. The other crop I haven't had great luck with is onions. I haven't had great luck with those. Um, I, I don't know what the issue is. Probably in my 28 years of doing it, I've had maybe five years where I got, you know, fist size onions. But on the farm, we used to grow onions, get, you know, grapefruit size onions in, uh, in our soil. But I don't know. It's just something about onions. They don't they don't tend to love it. Now, I've heard from other people, oh, my onions do great. You know, I've never been able to grow onions, but now I do trouble. So maybe it's just me, but I might be doing something wrong. But carrots do really well. You'll get carrots that'll grow almost out the bottom of the bale. And a lot of people have difficulty growing carrots. So to try carrots if they never have. And turnips, of course, and beets and, you know, all of your all of your typical root crops that people like. Awesome, awesome, man. So um let's talk about like how much we can grow like what does a sure. standard sized bale grow and i you're gonna use my answer i know of it depends well, what are you planting right <laughs> but you know in general maybe pick a couple different crops or a couple different polycultures and say you know this is kind of what you can get out of a bale okay you need to think not just about how much you could plant in a bale, but you need to think about how much space it's going to take for that plant to grow to maturity. So think about a tomato. You know, if you're to plant one of these hybrid tomatoes and then put a big trellis, I show people how to build a trellis in my books where you just put a fence post at the end of a row of bales and another fence post at the other end, and then you stretch electric fence wire back and forth between those posts, and that makes a nice trellis that you can, you know, weave your tomatoes up and through that trellis and makes a, a nice fat and then, and then the vines will go in both directions. So they'll go, you know, five feet to the right of that bale and five feet to the left of that bale, and they'll go seven feet tall, and you'll have 75 or 80 tomatoes hanging off of those vines, all supported by that one bale. Well, if you were to put a second tomato in that same bale, the roots would probably develop, but where's the top going to go? You know, they just overlap each other and you get too much vegetation. You don't get air circulation. You have problems with disease and insects. So I recommend if you're growing big hybrid tomatoes, do one tomato in a bale, then do some other things around the base. You know, plant some basil in the sides of the bales. Remember, we always plant the sides as well as the top of that bale surface. So we take our shovel handle, we make a hole in the side of the bale, and we put our uh, our little pre-started transplant, our bedding plant right in the side of that bale. So Basil works well. Carrots you could seed on top of the bale. So you're intermingling crops that are complementary, you know, so your carrots will be pretty much 
by the time your tomato starts to shade everything um, around it. When it gets, you know, later in the season, it gets really big. Um, and then I'll do other crops like uh, squash. Very often people will let squash vines just run out on the ground. Well, if you're growing a great big, huge butternut, it's really hard to support them up on a trellis. But squash, I've got little acorn squash, and I'll grow that vine right up on the trellis and... Most of the time, you don't even have to support those squash. They compensate when they know they're up in the air, and the stems will get a little thicker, and they tend to hold on really well. But it gets all that vegetation up off the ground, which changes really the culture of your garden. It reduces the humidity around those leaves, so you'll get less spread of fungal disease because the the leaves aren't in contact with the the um, and, of course, if you're watering your garden in the morning, you're going to get the soil wet, and that just increases the humidity. Here, we're using a soaker hose or a drip hose down that bale, so we're just watering roots, and we're keeping all that foliage up in the air above the bales. That lets us keep them dry. So if you haven't had success in the past growing certain types of squash because you get problems, try it in a straw bale garden. You'll you'll see very often it's people's first time they've had success um, with certain crops is when they do it in their strawberry gardens. Because um, it really does change the culture significantly of, of your strawberries. Can we talk about, is there anything climate-specific about this? Any climates it works particularly well in or particularly poor in? Or is this pretty much sure. something you can do anywhere? Well, it is something you can pretty much do anywhere, but there are some specific advantages. For us northerners, we talk about heat. That's a really big advantage. Um, extends your season significantly. For southerners... You know, where they get a lot of heat in late July or August and it burns everything up. You know, their tomato plants will get burned up because of the intense heat. This is a great way for them to start also because they can start a little bit earlier. You know, it takes till mid-February, late February before that soil warms up enough in, for instance, in Houston, Texas, uh, for that soil to warm up enough that you can get your garden started. Well, if you can start two weeks earlier, it extends your season two weeks earlier, which means if you're running up against the heat of summer, you're going to already have harvested tomatoes and other things because you got a little bit of a head start over traditional planting times. Now, the other big advantage is if you understand the swamp cooler effect. Now, you're from the south, you're down there in the south. I'm sure you understand this. When uh, a substrate like a bale gets soaking wet in the morning and then it gets hot and it starts to evaporate moisture out the sides of that bale, that has a cooling effect because of that evaporation. And it tends to keep that bale cooler than soil would be around it, especially if you have dark-colored soil that absorbs sunlight. So I, particularly there's one guy who's done a bunch of research. I'm not in the South, so of course I can't do this research, but in Georgia, and he's had great luck summering his tomatoes that used to just die out and then, you know, he'd never have tomatoes again after that. Um, now he can get them to weather through. They don't produce, of course, during the heat of summer, but then they're still healthy enough that they'll flower again and they'll set tomatoes. And he has tomatoes again from those same plants in the late fall at Thanksgiving and Christmas. He's harvesting tomatoes again from those same spring plants. So that's another bonus of, of the straw bell garden method is that little cooling effect. If you've ever grown lettuce, you know that by July 1st or so up here in the north, it gets pretty hot. That lettuce gets pretty, you know, spoiled tasting, tart tasting. It's not, it's not it good bolts, anymore. It bolts the seed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that's because of the warmth, the soil warmth. If you can keep the, that reseeding going on with lettuce, you can grow lettuce, and it doesn't ever get that 
nasty taste because of the coolness of the bales. So I grow lettuce in my garden year round up here. And I used to, in a soil garden when I was a kid, you know, by the third cutting, we would say, oh, this is giveaway lettuce. You know, this is stuff we don't want to keep because it didn't taste good anymore. You get that, that sour. Um, so that's another advantage is you, you can grow things that like the cooler soil because of that swamp cooler effect you're getting from the bales evaporation. Gotcha, man. How does sweet potato do? That's like one of my mainstay crops, <laughs> and I grow it as much for the greens as I do for the tubers. I grow a, sure. a Osaka purple Japanese, and, you know, sure. I'll, I'll throw those. I made a mistake last year. I threw one in an ebb and flow, uh, some slips in an ebb and flow bed for aquaponics. That ebb and mm -hmm. flow bed had to be ripped apart because oh, it went absolutely psychotic nuts, and the whole thing was hair roots. Um, so I won't do that again, but, you know, I grow them yeah. a lot in my wicking beds and stuff, and, you know, Because you can eat the greens, that's like one of the reasons we do that. It's harder to grow greens in our summer than in a lot of climates. So it's a go-to yeah. green for summer. But, I mean, that's just a mainstay crop for us. Have you had people do sweet potato? Yeah, and sweet potatoes are tough to grow uh, this far north. But but they do well in straw bales. I grow them every year. And I have – it's one of probably one of the most popular crops when you look at our social media feeds and people like, you know, gardeners like to brag when they grow good crops. And it's one of the number one, you know, people holding up a five pound sweet potato and, you know, they'll take a picture of their scale with their sweet potato on it. So yeah, it is, it is definitely successful in, in straw bales for sure. As are traditional potatoes, you know, but sweet potato is kind of a whole different animal than your traditional potato. So, um, but yeah, they, they grow well in there, you know, up here it's very, season our soil takes forever to get warmed up so for many people they've never had success growing a sweet potato until wow. they plant in straw bales and many many people here don't even know you know the process of growing they don't know how to make slips on a sweet potato so that they can cut them and plant them you know they end up buying pre-potted sweet potatoes which is you know you can make slips so easy yourself that um so yeah, it's kind of a it's a new animal for people up here that are straw bale gardeners because m many people aren't familiar with it in traditional soil. Well, I'll give you a tip for the sweet potato so you never have to pull slips off of a tuber again. Every year at the end of the season, cut a couple of pieces, throw them in a flower pot, grow it as a house plant over the oh. over the winter, and it's like perpetual forever sweet potato. You never have to do anything ever again other than pinch and stick. It's it's that's what we've gone to do, and you got to have house plants anyway, oh. so why not have something you can yeah. eat? Um, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll yeah. try that. Yeah, so um, who do you think benefits the most from this? Like, who is this really for? Because, I, I mean, I was looking at your site. You've made some significant impact in, I guess, what we'd call food deserts right here in America, but all over the world, really. Yeah, we've got projects happening in in countries all over the world. You know, we, <laughs> we get wrapped up in our own uh, – culture here in the United States and we think we got it tough. You know, we think poor people are poor. Well, you haven't seen poor people until you go to rural Cambodia and some of these places where, you know, it's just really a tough life. You know, these people, many of them have lived there and have never left, never gone beyond 10 kilometers from where they were born. And they live on their family farm that been in their family for, you know, multiple, multiple generations. Many of these people over there don't, don't read and write. You know, in the 1970s, if you were one of the electrals, you could read and write. Pol Pot had you put to death. So a lot of these farmers now are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and many of them are are unable to read and write. So I, you can't just send them a pamphlet. You got to go there and show them the process of how to do this. So 
that was one of my first projects I did was over in Cambodia and the rural parts of Cambodia. You know, you can't get a food aid truck to these people when they're desperate for food because for five months of the year, three of those months is flood three to four feet of water everywhere you look covers up all the good soil. And then for the next two or three months after the floods go away, it's it's drought and it's 110 degrees and no at all, which means for this five month period, they can't grow crops. The rest of the seven months a year, they're really good at growing rice and they can grow other vegetables, but rice is their mainstay and they're good at it. They grow lots of rice, but then you can't live on just rice. You know, you got to have some vegetables to mix in with your diet or your your Kids get malnourished and it's just not a good situation. So we went in there and we came up with this great technology. And you can always watch my TED talk. I talk more details about this, but um, there's great technology where we dig a hole on their farm and we bring in a backhoe. I was doing this in partnership with some guys from South Korea, the, the trade development corporation from South Korea. And we dig a hole with the backhoe and then we make a pile out of that soil that we dug out of the hole. And that the pile was just higher than their highest flood level every year. Then we take their rice straw from their rice fields and we would make it into bales. Currently, they burn their rice straw. That's how they get rid of it. Huh. So this is a yeah, their government hates it. And, you know, all around the world are on these people not to burn your straw because it's these huge, literally nationwide fires that happened for for two weeks before planting season of rice. And this happens all over India and you know, all over much of Asia. So um, this is just a small drop in the bucket, but we harvest their straw from their rice patties and we make that into bales. We make them a hand baler because they'd never heard of a you know mechanical baler. So we make them a little wooden hand baler. They make it into bales. They put it on top of this mound that we've now got above flood stage. Now they condition those bales. They got lots of urea nitrogen over there. Their government is, gives them lots of nitrogen to grow rice. So they have stores of nitrogen. They use a little nitrogen to get those bales decomposition to be and then they plant into those bales. So now they're growing leafy greens and different types of cucumbers and gourds, bitter gourd and squash and these other vegetables need to supplement their diet. Even when the monsoon rains come. Remember we talked a little earlier about how these are high filtration or high drainage raised beds is really what a bale is. So even though it rains six inches in one day, by that afternoon, the air is back into that bale, the water's run out the bottom of the bale, air's back in, and the vegetable roots can thrive inside of those bales. Where their soil is all saturated and soaked everywhere you look. So they can't grow anything in the soil, even if it was high ground, it holds moisture too much. Mm -hmm. So this works perfect. They plant the bales, the crops grow. Now when the drought season comes, they got this great big hole in the ground right next to the garden that's holding on to five or 10,000 gallons of water. They can use couple gallons every day, go up there and water each bale, and it maintains that garden. So for at least that five months, um, and they, a lot of them garden in that spot year-round because one of the things about raising cows over there, cattle, is in the morning every farmer opens their gate to their cattle, and the cows just walk around the neighborhood and eat whatever they can find. Well, if you have a nice vegetable garden, they might come and eat your vegetable garden. So on top of this mound, the sides are steep enough that the can't climb up on top of this garden. So without having to build any fence, they have this garden that's away from the cows in particular and the oxen, so they can't get up there and eat their, their garden. So it kind of solves that problem as well. So it's really expanded. We went from zero farmers doing this. We have over 5,000 now um, doing this in Cambodia. And it's, it's amazing once you show somebody a way that they can fill up empty stomachs with very little or no investment 
at all because they don't have money. So that's not, you know, that really isn't an issue. As long as they can figure out a way to do this, just using labor, someone gives them a little different technique, it spreads like crazy. You know, they show their neighbors and their neighbors show their neighbors and it spreads really fast. So it's only been a couple of years since I was there and we've got a huge following over there now of people that are doing this. And it's spread to other countries as well, you know, Southeast Asia. But our starter project was in Cambodia. That's pretty amazing. I'll tell you, that technique's going in the next permaculture course I teach. I, I Absolutely, that is the problem becoming a solution right there. Um, I think we kind of just covered this, but what I have down in my notes is let's talk about expense. What is the expense of somebody doing this? Because, you know, to be fair, like yeah. they basically did it for no money. Most people in America, we do rely a little bit on convenience, mm -hmm. so we might take a little right. bit different of approach to it here. Right. Yeah, most of us got... 20 bucks or 40 bucks, we're going to go down to the fleet farm and we're going to buy some bales and give this thing a go, right? And get a little small bag of lawn fertilizer or if you're organic, get a little blood meal and we're going to give this thing a try. So that's my expectations as well. You know, people want to do this and, and not have to spend a ton of money. And this is, really is a great way to get into gardening for a new gardener that's just starting out. You know, five bucks a bale, usually you can rustle up bales for five dollars a bale and it's very convenient. Get yourself six or eight bales to start You know, you're going to need 10 bucks worth of fertilizer to get the bales ready. Um, and, you know, you need a water hose, probably a soaker hose to go on top of your bales. So you got $10 in a soaker hose and a hose end timer. That works good. Then you don't have to remember to water your garden. Um, and, that, and then getting your seeds or your plants, whatever it is you're going to put in there. So you, you can get this whole thing going easily for under 100 bucks. And that's a pretty, you know, pretty small investment when you're counting how many vegetables you're going to um, I encourage, I talk to lots of garden center owners as well, and I encourage them to teach their newbie gardeners that come in, to get them into a class and teach them straw bale gardening because they're going to be successful. You know, if you were to count the number of brand new homeowners, you know, they're in their mid or 20s and they just bought a house, they just had a baby, and now they want to plant a garden. That's always the next step, right? So they come in and they, they come to the garden center and they sell them a book about how to plant a vegetable garden. But there is a lot to know about planting a traditional vegetable garden. Then they go home, they rent a rototiller and they till up a spot in their lawn and they make some rows and they plant their peas and beans. And two months later, it is a great big carpeted spot of weeds. All the grass grows back and they don't know what to pull and what not to pull because they're new to this, right? And so then halfway through the summer, they mow it off with the rest of the lawn. They throw in the towel. I'm not a gardener. They give up. With straw bale gardening, that's never going to happen because if you plant something, I guarantee you, you're going to harvest something. You know, you probably won't harvest 100% of everything you plant. You know, it's not the expectation we're looking for. But, you know, if you're 70 or 75% successful with what you plant, you'd be amazed how inspiring that is for somebody who's never grown anything. You know, for you and I, we'd be disappointed if only seven out of ten things we planted grew. But for somebody who's never grown anything, their friends come over and they serve them some tomatoes that they grew in their garden or some cucumbers that they grew or, you know, peppers that they grew in their garden, a salad. Hey, I grew all this in my own garden. That's a instills sort of an excitement in that person. And it gets them wet appetite for gardening and it gets sucks them in to, to be in a gardener. Next year, they're going to expand their garden. They say, you know, I got a pretty green thumb. I might try planting some bushes over here. I might try this. I might try that. And it really pulls them out into the garden and it gives them a healthy lifestyle. You know, there's nothing better than fresh vegetables for somebody who's used to eating nothing but processed foods in terms of helping your diet. You know, if you got 
on the doorstep to diabetes, there's nothing better than a fresh vegetable garden to help cut that problem up the pass and, you know, steer you towards a more healthy way of eating for sure. That's awesome, man. So um, I think we're, we're this is kind of an obvious answer here, but it doesn't seem to me like you need a lot of tools. You mentioned maybe using a soaker hose or drip irrigation. In my case, yeah. I have water that's so hard that it'll hurt you, your face if somebody throws a glass at you. So it clogs yeah. drippers. So I, if I have to do yep. drip irrigation, I just take PVC pipe, slap an end cap on and drill holes in it. Um, yeah. So you, you, know, you need some type of irrigation. But when it comes to like, when you think of gardening, like you see people with broad forks and they had a yeah. spade shovel and a flat shovel and a rake and a hoe yeah. and it doesn't seem like you need much at all to do this. You're right. You don't need any. Uh, maybe a hand trowel is always helpful, and you might want a pruning shears. That's really the only tools you need. I have an article in the Star, in the Chicago Tribune last fall, and there was a guy they featured. I didn't even know this article was coming out, and then somebody sent me a link to it. He's 97 years old and is in an assisted living complex with a bunch of other old people, and he has a big straw bale garden and grows all this. So this the guy's 97. You can imagine he's not exactly a spring chicken. Sure. And once those bales are delivered and put into place, you don't need any tools after that. So there's no shovel and rake and spade. You don't need a rototiller. I would my gardeners, in a couple of years, you're going to be 100% converted over to straw bales. And you can sell that rototiller and buy yourself an old used baler and make some money. Because every <laughs> everybody who sees your garden is going to want to buy bales, and you can sell them the bales. So um, that's actually become a bit of a problem around some parts of the country, especially up here where I speak a lot, is there are people doing straw bale gardening that it's harder and harder to find bales. Yeah. You know, literally farmers run out of the small squares. Everybody does the big rounds and, you know, it becomes harder and harder to access them. But And they're getting more expensive. You know, it used to be a – geez, when I was a kid, we'd sell them for 50 cents, but that was a long time ago. Um, a lot of farmers used to – Bales, you know, a couple of years ago for two dollars, three dollars a piece. Now they now they know they can demand it, so they get five or six bucks for the same bale. I have farmers that tell me they make more money on their bales than they do selling their wheat off of the field per acre. So, you know, it's kind of the worm has turned when it comes to the price of straw bales, but it's good for the farmers. You know, sure. I'm happy for the farmers. And there's a lot of you know entrepreneurship out there with farmers. I got a couple of guys out in the west of the Twin Cities where I live with that are trucking in round bales from North Dakota, and then they they un, unwind them, they spin them backwards. I, I knew where that was going right away. And make, make them into square bales, and he sells them to all the garden centers here in, in the Twin Cities. So, yeah, awesome. I, I mean, you know, it's a great opportunity if someone has an old square baler they got in the back of the machine shed to pull it out, and you know, it can actually get something for your, your labor you put into it these days. That's awesome. So, yeah, kind of on that, like, where do people find bales if they're having trouble? I mean, like you mentioned the cost. Like, around here, um, there's a feed store that I buy my straw at because I, I keep ducks, and it's just perfect for their their bedding, you know, because they're going to crap yep. ridiculous amounts every day. So I put that in their duck house. They go in there every night, and I deep litter it until it's until it's deep enough that I get one of the young kids around here to clean it out for me. And start <laughs> over, but I'm giving about seven fifty, I think seven fifty a bale, right now. Yeah. And I only have ten bucks now. I used to have like a hundred and fifty, so now at ten, it's like I don't care. It's 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 pocket change. But you know, yeah. it, it, like you said, it's going up. So where do people find bales, or what are some nope. ways maybe people could find material and make their own? Well, certainly you can you can go direct to farmers. So if, I always tell somebody you got to know a farmer because that farmer knows all the other farmers. <laughs> it's kind of like if you know a teacher that knows. 
The nurse knows all the other nurses. Same thing with farmers. So a farmer may not have any straw. You know, he doesn't grow wheat or oats or barley or rice or anything. So, but he may know somebody who does. And that's a good way to get direct to a farmer. Um, and let them know a season ahead. You know, I'm looking for square, small squares. So if you're doing these all in big rounds, think about running your old tether for an afternoon and, you know, I'll give you five bucks a bale. So it's a good, you establish a, a source that you can go back to year after year. That's a great way to do it. I'll tell you, Craigslist is a place we appear. All the farmers put ads on Craigslist now. And believe it or not, on Facebook Marketplace, there's a lot of farmers that advertise really? on there for straw bales as well. So that's where a lot of people go up here. You know, farm stores, like you say, farm supply stores, garden centers, nurseries, the more you get into straw bale gardening, the more aware you become of straw bales. And you'd be surprised. You drive around in the winter up here, lots of people will throw straw bales over top of their septic drain field just to make sure it doesn't freeze that deep in the ground. Or they'll put straw bales around the base of their house, especially people who live in like a trailer home that has less insulation. They'll put them around the base just as a you know, block to keep the snow and air out from underneath their, their trailer. And they toss those bales away in the spring. Well, all you need to do is knock on their door and say, hey, I'll, I'll take care of those bales for you this spring. And a bale that sat out all winter is perfect. You know, it'll be a little Second bit conditioned. The yeah. conditioning be start. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. It started right down the path. It's got exactly what we need. That makes me think. I, think I, I get them for free all the time, but I just throw them into the compost because my feed store, I have, there's like two locations that I use. Uh -huh. They, in the winter when it freezes and stuff, they put them around pipes and stuff like that. And nobody ever yep. wants them. And they always give yeah, them to me, and I just throw perfect. them in the compost, and the birds like to dig in that and whatnot. So, yep. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and if you get real desperate, you, you can make your own bales. I mean, there is an easy process for how to do it. I always tell people, get your biggest rubber-made tub that you have. You need to dump all your Christmas decorations out of it, but bring it outside, and then fill that great big tub. First thing they want to do that makes it really easy is line the bottom of it with chicken wire and let the ends hang out. Okay. And then you're going to stuff that that Rubbermaid tub with leaves and grass clippings. And, you know, you pulled some weeds out of your garden, throw those in there. And you got some tulip pulls and you got some, you know, any trimmings off of your bushes, that kind of stuff. Anything that would normally go into a compost pile goes into this tub. And you smash it, you stomp it, you get up on it, jump up and down. And then when you get it all done, fill it up with water and leave it overnight. And come back tomorrow morning and fold the ends of that chicken wire over the top and staple a two-by-two two underneath those wires and then twist that two-by-two. Two. And you can tighten that chicken wire real tight around that mass of organic material in that tub. Then you take the tub over and dump it out right, right where you want to have your garden. It's going to be heavy at that point. So you might need two people. But, you know, if it weighs 100 pounds, it's hard to move. But So keep it close to where you want to have your garden is my point. Then you dump it out and you twist that two by two nice and tight. And if you keep a sharp end poking out the bottom of that two by two, then you can just pound that sharp end right in the ground and you don't need to fasten it anyway. It just kind of holds itself in place. And that becomes a bale. It's not exactly square, you know, the shape of a normal bale, but it's nice and tight. And now it's a mixture of organic materials. Now it's a true compost. You know, we're, we're doing a, Really, the bales are a, a compost, but it's not an active compost pile like you go in and turn because we can't do that with a bale. This is a passive compost system is really sure. what we're using. And so it's exactly what you're going to do here with all this organic material. Now, if you're really good at composting, when you're making the bale, you're going to mix things so you get the right carbon-nitrogen ratio. You know, you're going to put a, 
three parts carbon, one part nitrogen, brown to green, and get that nice combination. If you're good at that and you and you don't get it right, a couple handfuls of lawn fertilizer or a little dose of blood meal mixed in when you're making that bale and give it a little water. And in a couple of days, you'll see that little compost homemade bale that you made um, will be nice and warm, just like your straw bales get warm. It'll be the exact same thing in that little bale. And I've had some of my best crops in terms of you know, number of tomatoes produced, et cetera, out of my homemade bales. Wow. It's part of it is that mixture of organic material. You know, straw is only going to give off the nutrients from the breaking down of the cells of the straw. So it only took specific nutrients to build that straw plant, where when you mix a whole bunch of organic material together, now you get every micronutrient that could possibly exist to grow all these different variety of trees and leaves and, you know, all this mixture of organic material. So you get a better balance of macro and micronutrients in a in a homemade bale versus just a bale of straw. Well, there's a little bit of the Korean gardening going on there, too, with natural cultures of different funguses and things like that that are naturally attracted to different organic matter sources. So that's, that's right. going on, too, with that. That makes a lot of sense. So um, I'll just throw on, if anybody's going to make them yourself with those Rubbermaid tubs, you were talking about it being heavy. They do make Rubbermaid tubs with wheels. I would recommend that if you decide you if you decide to specifically buy one for that reason, look for one with wheels. Um, but it seems like this is kind of like a two-season thing per bale, so we're going to end up with a lot of this really great broken-down organic matter. What are people doing with it? With the you know that third year or that end of second yeah. year? What do you what do you do with that? thing well, i'll tell you a, a whole bunch of it i use in my containers you know i have, i do lots of flowers around mm -hmm. the place as well as vegetables so i think i have a i'm up to 11 or 12 great big flower pots and so i use it as as container mix container media i mean it performs just as well or better than that 13 dollar a bag stuff you buy at the garden center um you know so i fill it up completely with that now it doesn't last as long typically it'll only last me really one season it gets broken down pretty much and it gets the drainage isn't as good the second year so you kind of got to refill it every year but that's fine with me when i dump it out of those i put it in my annual flower beds and till it into the soil i put it around my perennial gardens around my bushes and trees just sort of as compost um as mulch you know mm -hmm. so it It, it, and it doesn't have any weed seeds in it. It's been heat cycled and, you know, it, it does a great job of mulching around that, keeping the weeds down and just builds beautiful soil. I mean, when I moved to this property that I live in, uh, I had no soil. I had literally one inch of topsoil and then construction fill underneath. And I've raised the elevation of my entire property probably by a foot because of all the organic material I've introduced, you know, over the years, over the 20 years I've lived here. So, um, you know, you can really amend really cruddy soils by adding all this organic material and really improve them drastically. So what one day you wanted to garden in, but it was too much sand or too much clay and it just didn't work. In a few years of adding organic material, you can, you can sort of resurrect that soil. You know, and as great as the organic material is, what you're really doing is biologics. And that I have sure. learned in my time. I've been really serious about this. Now, I've been gardening my whole life since I was a little kid, but I've been really serious about mm -hmm. this for the last 10 years. And when you increase the, the biological activity in soil, it, you know, you take, it's clay. Okay, it's clay. And you do it right for a while, and people look at it and go, that's a loam. And you're like, huh, that's a clay. Or you can do it with sand, and all of a sudden that structure builds. And biology 
combined with that organic material is what does that. So it would make perfect sense. It's basically a form of compost, so you're treating it exactly like what it is. Uh, that's exactly. it. Are there, are there any concerns at all with this, especially with straw and sourcing? One of the things that I always hear people really concerned about is, you know, I'm going to get something. Herbicide. Sprayed. Exactly. Yeah. Ray Rose yeah. going sprayed with Roundup yeah. or something. Like, do you notice, like, somebody gets a bale of straw, puts it in there, and everything dies or something like that? Yeah, you know, you hear stories, but I think 99.9% of the time it's not herbicide. It's it's just, you know, it's a watering issue or it's a, you know, they did something wrong and it's not necessarily that it came with the straw. But with that said, there have been instances where a farmer has sprayed a hayfield, for instance, with a cloppy rallid or an amino rallid and then bailed up that hay or that or that straw and sold it now that's off label and that's illegal okay. they can't they're not supposed to do that criminal prosecution and huge liability if they do that because they know what will happen that bale could end up in somebody's garden and you know you spread that out as mulch and all of a sudden nothing wants to grow and and it'll take you know a couple of years in order to get rid of that now do you know what gets rid of that amino rally and cloppy rally microbial uh, activity microbial activity it's, and UV. yeah it's UV exactly. And it's, yeah. it's, it's bacteria that will help consume those carbon chains and break those carbon chains down. And that's what gets rid of. That's what sort of cleanses that from from being a contaminant to being inert at some point. So what we're doing with straw bale garden is really composting that straw. So if you had a light contamination, it probably would get burned off by the the microbial activity, that metabolic mm -hmm. process of bacteria inside that bale, because it's going to colonize the entire interior of that bale. So it probably would burn most of that off. Now, I, I've seen a couple pictures people have sent me, and boy, it sure looks like it could be herbicide damage on a plant. But normally, if you do an assay test, which is, you know, pull a couple handfuls of straw out of that bale, chop it up real fine, mix it 50-50 with some clean potting mix, put it in some little cups, and then plant some carrot seeds, some tomato seeds and some peas and bean seeds and see what germinates. If all four of those crops germinate, there's no contamination. You know, if one or more of those crops doesn't germinate, there could be contamination. If none of them germinate, you for sure have contamination in that in that mix. And, it, you know, you can send it away and get a test for $250 or you can You know, for five minutes worth of time, you can run your own little assay test, and in five days, you'll know exactly what you're dealing with. So that's in my books. That's what I talk about is if you have any question at all and you think this is a possibility, you could run an assay test. Now, the good news is if you do have a bale that's contaminated, you haven't spread it out through your garden. Correct. And number two, nothing's going to grow or at least not going to produce fruit. You might get a half, you know, wanky looking stalk that comes out of the bale, but it's not going to produce fruit to speak of. So you're probably not going to eat anything out of a garden that has any contamination. So that's the good, that's the upside. The so downside here's what I've waste, always, here's what I've always yeah. done for this. I, I'll take some straw from a new source and I'll soak it in water and I'll plant sure. two containers, both with the same kind of a bean because legumes are like, it's like the most affected by this stuff and plant them both. If they grow the same and one's watered with the straw water and one isn't, then you, you know you're good. And this is, I don't even do it anymore because it never happened. I, like yeah. when I first learned about it, like, oh, this rare. is great. This is great. Now I'll know. And so then it became like I'll go buy some straw over here and prove that these guys are yeah. killing us with poison. Yeah. And 
it never I'm not saying yeah. it doesn't happen. I'm saying in 10 yeah. years it's never happened for me. Yeah. And and I've been doing this for, you know, many many Almost years. 30, I guess. I've been, yeah. I've been in con I've been in contact with literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world that do this. And there maybe a handful of cases where this could be potentially the problem. It's very, very rare. I'll tell you what happens is when a, when a subject gets popular, like Strawberry Garden has become popular over the last four or five years, is there's websites out there that want to try to get clicks. You know, it's kind of, I call them the clickbait. And so they'll publish something that's exactly opposite of, you know, what people would expect to read. And then because people are interested in the subject, they're all going to go read it. You know, a good example would be, you know, drinking coffee can cause cancer. So, of course, everybody clicks because everybody drinks coffee. They want to see, well, how am I going to get cancer from drinking coffee? And that's how they sucker you to come to their website. And then they get paid by advertisers based on clicks. So part of it is, you know, the whole Internet thing that that blows these things up when somebody comes up with this idea. But, you know, there, there's nothing you can do. I try to put out good information and try to encourage people to try it. Certainly, I'll tell you this, certainly growing your own food is a lot less risky than just going to the market and buying something off the shelf. You have no idea what's in that. So there you go. No, I, I agree with that. So you, you've mentioned you can kind of do everything on your own, but you actually do have a product for inoculating these bales, right? Yeah, we have a product. It's called Bale Buster, and it really was sort of came about out of necessity. I'd get so many people that would reach out and they'd say, Just tell me what to buy. You know, they read my book, and in my book, I don't give you a brand name. I don't say, okay, go to Home Depot, and this is what you want to buy. I tell people sort of the parameters of what fertilizer. If you're organic, this is what you want to look for. If you're a traditional gardener, this is what you want to look for, these characteristics. And people get frustrated, and they would reach out, and it's almost like they were angry at me for not just telling them, go buy XYZ product. Sure. And there really wasn't a product that had all the characteristics that I was looking for and you know, I could really, you know, it was well worth the money and that had all the characteristics. And you talk about um, microbial activity and, and, you know, soil that's alive. We, we made this bale buster and in the bale buster, we pre inoculate this bale buster with a fungi called trichoderma. I don't know if you're familiar with trichoderma. It's a pretty common in the vegetable gardening industry, particularly in Asia. They use it a lot. It's a, It's a synergistic fungi that helps roots absorb nutrients and it prevents some disease as well. So we pre-inoculate this bale buster with this stuff and then we pre-inoculate the bale buster also with a bacteria um, that is made for breaking down. It's a bacillus bacteria, so it breaks down organic material. Now, of course, soils are filled already with fungus and bacteria and your bales will already have some bacteria spores and fungal spores in them. But when we inoculate them, pre-inoculate them with these two particular ones and then feed those with a little nitrogen, it quickly, very rapidly will help colonize that bale and break it down faster. And then if some of that uh, fungi sticks around, the trichoderma, it helps create some synergy. It's very, very difficult to test this. And I tell people that, you know, the I want to be honest and upfront with the efficacy of whether this works or not. And in some environments, it may not have a lot of effect. Um, we're always giving you the nitrogen in the bale buster. That, that comes with it. You know, that's just part of the, comes along. But the, the fung bacteria that we put in it could be very beneficial for people, especially in dry climates, 
Um, you know, people in colder climates up here where we are, where it takes a while for that fungi and bacteria to get going in the spring uh, because it's so cold that helping inoculate those bales could certainly could certainly help with that process. Now, we've been selling it for years, so I've been testing it for about four years, get great results. But again, without lots of research science behind it, it's really hard to count colony fungi and bacteria um, without some really powerful microscopes and equipment. So we just kind of go by results, and we've gotten great results, um, and people really like the product. Um, it's priced right, so we've been pushing it for that reason. Awesome, man. So uh, on that note, we were talking, and for my members, you're going to do a discount, right? And I'm on your site now, and I'm right. looking at you've got the product, you've got the books, you've got an electronic book. So we, we had talked about that. Do you want to tell people the discount you're going to offer and – Um, are you going to do it for everything in your store, like the books too? Because I know some things have different margins and all. Is it just yeah. for, for the bail buster, or, or, or what is that going to be? We'll, we'll do it for everything in the store. Okay. 25, 25% off, and your discount costs, uh, I don't know if you want to give that. No, no, that's for members only. you got to okay. be an MSB member. Okay. Uh, but okay. There you go. I mean, I mean that's that's a pretty good discount. Um For a lot of people, that may cover you know a good portion of their annual membership fee. So yeah, man, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm gonna, I will be the first user of the code. I will be uh, getting some <laughs> of this today myself. Um, I, this intrigues me. I have a, a, a quail aviary uh, that I have uh, done a bunch of wicking beds in. I've used these hundred gallon Rubbermaid tubs to build uh, these wicking okay. beds, and I'm redesigning it this year. And so I have a bunch of space in it right now, and I wasn't gonna just wasn't going to get to it this year. So there's like a whole bunch of space. I've already got water plumb for my well out there and everything. And uh, I will give this a shot. And, and that way people can see, you know, that I'm doing it too. And, uh, you know, you mentioned vertical space. So it's an aviary with a nine foot back wall. So, oh, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've had like, you know, you throw a butternut in one of the beds and then you, it's a 50 foot long by 10 foot wide aviary. So you trade it up to the roof and then it just goes along the roof all the way down the other end. So, Uh, sure. Should be fun, and uh, yeah, Indeed. man, I I, uh, I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, generally, people don't get into the uh, members program without a longer like lead up, and we just had not, I didn't realize you actually had a product set. So we just talked about this today when we were offline before we got on the air. Uh, but looking at your track record, how long you've been around, and what you've done, I'm I'm happy to have you, man. So I really appreciate that. I want people to make sure that they, they hook up with you, man. Um, website is strawbellgardens.com, and you're involved yep. in like just about every social media platform there is. So if people will yeah. get, on, get on by the website today and look at the episode in the show notes, I've got links to everything. But if there's anything specific you want to point people to, go ahead and do that now. You know, the only social media we don't really get involved in is Snapchat. I haven't figured that one out. But but all the rest of them, we're, we have a nice presence there. And, you know, use the hashtag Gardens and do a search. You'll find literally thousands of people on Instagram and, and Facebook that are doing Strawbell Gardening. And look at what other people have to say. You know, of course, I'm going to be pushing it because it's my Yours. thing. But uh, but other people will will testify as well about how great it works for them. So, you know. Do a little sh looking around on the internet. You'd be surprised how prevalent it is. 
um, out there. And people, probably people near you, wherever you live, are already doing this in their backyard somewhere. So um, keep your eyes and ears open. You'll you'll hear people talking about it, and you'll see people doing it. One of the things that really impressed me with you was right before this episode, I took some time and watched your TED Talk. And as good as the whole thing was, and I'll make sure there's a link to that as well, though it's on your, it's on the front page of your site, um, was it like last couple minutes. And you started talking about basically liberty and freedom and autonomy of people uh, and not being so much subject to the control of the government. This entire community of people has been built on the concepts of uh, liberty, freedom, and independence. That's that's what we're looking for here, and that requires self-responsibility. It requires the ability to feed yourself. And could you just talk a little bit about what giving people the ability to produce their own food does from a standpoint of independence and freedom? Well, you know, it's hard to understand this until you go to a country where this is an issue. You know, I went to Cambodia, and Cambodia is a fledgling supposed democracy. But if someone shows up at your doorstep and they got two bags of food and they say, you know, if you vote for this guy, I'll give you both bags. (laughs) And if you vote for this guy, you're only going to get a half of one bag. Which guy are you going to vote for? You know, it's not much of a choice. So it might be a democracy in theory, but in reality, until you can provide food for your kids. I mean, imagine every day up and looking at your kid being hungry. It's one thing for you to be hungry. It's something else for you to look in the eyes of your child and have them be hungry. And you don't know how you're going to get food to feed them. You know, that's a that's a tough nut. You know, that's a bad situation to be in. And there's a lot of people in the world that are in that situation, you know, where their government controls who gets how much. Now, we're th- we think we're being generous because we send them, you know, 100 bucks and they buy a bunch of rice and they put it on a ship and they send it over and then they deliver it. But you know who ends up distributing that food is the guys with the guns. And they're the ones who decide who gets how much food and, you know, they control everything. So that's how they stay in power. So. Part of the reason we need to solve this, get rid of this middleman process of continually giving people food. Number one, it's all the farmers out of business. You know, truck shows up and is giving everybody free food. Well, who's going to buy your food when you're a farmer trying to make a living? So then it takes the incentive away from these, from the local farmer. And pretty soon you're really in a pickle. Now you don't have anybody produce food. You're 100% reliant on food aid to show up and, and feed your village. So we need to turn this process around and we can do that by education. It doesn't cost anything to do this. They can do this anywhere. They don't need tools. They don't need, they don't even need fertilizer. You know what? They can use urine to get these bales prepared. Believe it or not, six liters of urine on a bale over a period of 12 days and these bales are ready to plant. Now, a lot of us curl our nose when we hear that, but the reality is if that, if it's between that as the nitrogen source for your bales and not having anything to eat, Trust me, you'll go out and, and whiz on a bale in a hurry if that's what it takes for you to for you to produce food. And I see that in these people, particularly in the Philippines, people very aggressive about learning how to take care of themselves. You know, once they see a neighbor be successful, the whole village is doing it. You know, they, they adapt things, adopt new ideas very, very quickly when it means they get something to eat and it doesn't cost them anything. You know, it's a it's a free option for them to grow their own food. And it's easy to do. People are, many of them don't have an advanced education. They don't know as much as we do about, you know, going to the library, reading a book to learn about gardening. That's just not an option for them. 
So it has to be simple. It can't require a big investment. And that's where straw bale gardening really has shown, you know, has been a shining example in these countries of independence. And um, I I just hope more and more of them continue to adopt it. And that's part of um, part of what I'm trying to accomplish is spreading the word. You know, the the problem is those people don't buy books. So it's hard to pay for plane tickets and, you know, get over to these parts of the country um, unless somebody brings you over there. Somebody that that is involved already has a NGO or somehow a government um, wants you to come in and work with their people. So that's that's what we try to promote and spread. But I, I don't, I'm not a charity. I don't collect money from people for any type of charitable work. You know, it, probably long term would be a goal of ours. But right now, it's just not it's not in the cards for us. That's a, that's awesome, man. And I, I really think the people in this country are so blessed they don't understand it. I spent quite a few years in the military. I spent time in Honduras, Panama, uh, lots of different parts of, of Central America, honestly. And it amazes me when people say, you know, well, if I had to, I'd eat out of the garbage. And I'm like, you know, there are places where that's not an option because if it's edible, it's not in the garbage. And right. it's hard to right. find garbage. Like, garbage is yeah. a modern problem. Like, waste is an ancient problem. But garbage, yeah. as we think of it, is a modern problem. Garbage means that you have so much surplus that you throw resources away. And exactly. that is not the case in a lot of the world, man. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, glad to have you now as a partner. Really enjoyed having you on the air today. And uh, look forward to, uh, at some point, probably having you back on in the future, Joel. Uh, thank you. That'd be for, great. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for spending time with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. All right, that was a fantastic interview, and uh, the discount code is already in the MSB. Before I uh, recorded the conclusion for you guys, there got off my butt and got that done for you. I've already placed my order, and uh, my orders uh, with the discount code with the stuff I got saved me twelve bucks. So that's you know. Uh, a fourth of an MSB membership right there, just in that one discount. So it's really great that we have him. I think this is going to work really great for a lot of people. It's going to help a lot of people move quicker with getting gardens established as well and getting production out of them. I really like what he's doing. I really like his efforts around the world with relief work and things like that as well. So I think this is going to be really an awesome, awesome benefit to MSB members. So that's a pitch right there for MSB. Do consider becoming an MSB member. And uh, if you if you do that, you know you'll get this discount and this discount and discounts to like seventy other companies. Uh, I almost defy you to not get your money back. You just must not buy anything that we talk about if you if you uh, don't get your money back on it. Uh, but great interview. Really enjoyed having Joel on today. Hope you guys enjoyed it too. And I'm looking forward to hearing from some of y'all who've already been doing this or give this a shot this year. I've already got a trip planned up to the feed store to get me some more bales and, and get that stuff established in my aviary. And, of course, I will be documenting that on YouTube like I do everything. Remember, in addition to becoming a member, one of the ways that you can help support this show and the work that we do is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That website, tspaz, it's just like it sounds, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you can see all the items that I've reviewed on Amazon. Let me tell you a little story here. It's a true story. Joel, back me up. He offered to send me a, a free uh, Bell Buster kit. I said, you know, I don't do that. He said, what? I said, I don't do that. I have a policy that when I recommend that my audience purchase something, I buy it. Now, 
you know, I do take barter, like Butcher Box, or the sponsor I mentioned at the beginning. They don't pay me with money; they pay with me, pay me with meat. But I bought my first box. I always spend my money on something first because I feel if I don't spend my money on it, that asking you to spend your money on it doesn't make sense. It's not got any integrity in it. So everything that I recommend at T-Spaz, I spent my own money on it. I'll do it again. Today's uh, product, I brought it around because I ended up having to clean my dog's ears last night. He started having some problems again, my big old German Shepherd. Uh, these are AromaCare ear wipes. It's a simple little $8 product. You get 100 of these little uh, wipes in it, kind of like if you remember back when you were a kid and you had acne, they had them things for your face. It's kind of They kind of look just like that. Uh, it's made with uh, aloe vera and eucalyptus. And I have tried a ton of different things uh, to keep my dog's ears clean. It's important that we, we worry about our dog's ears health. And, uh, you know, Charlie and Lucy, it's not a big deal, but I still want the best product I can get. Max, it's got to work because I can't be doing it every day because he's 150 pounds and he's a big baby and he doesn't like it. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a 150-pound German Shepherd who doesn't want you to stick your finger in his ear. Let him stick your finger in his ear, but it's not easy. And even though I've gotten him pretty well squared away, and I don't want to do it any more than I have to. I do my, my dogs get it once a, once a month, and it's all I've needed to do. With Max, he gets it twice a month. And if he has any kind of, you know, I hear him shaking his ears or something, he gets, gets it again. And every once in a while, he gets three times a month like this month. So it made me think of it. I know a lot of y'all are dog lovers and dog owners and animal lovers in general. Ear health is important. If your dog's ears stink, there's something wrong. It is not normal for a dog's ears to stink. That means there's something in there that shouldn't be there. You get these things and you use them, I promise you, your life will get better and so will your dogs. My little thing on how I get a 150-pound German Shepherd to let me do it. If you have anything you need to do to your dogs that they don't like, as soon as it's over, give them a treat, a chicken jerky, a biscuit, whatever. Because it doesn't take the canine brain long to go, hey, I don't like this thing, but when it's over, I get my num-num. So I'm telling you, this is the way to go. And even Max has gotten to where, you know, he doesn't like it, but he lets me do it, which is much better than the alternative. Uh, again, it's made by a company called Aromacare Earwipes. Uh, eucalyptus and aloe vera, this stuff works like everything I recommend. If it didn't work, I wouldn't recommend it. And remember, you can absolutely... Always help this show out, no matter what you do. If you just start out your online shopping at T-Spaz, it's painless. doesn't cost you any extra money to do it that way, so why not? That brings us to our song of the day today. And uh, today, uh, John Adams has queued up for us a song by Jack Ingram called That's a Man. Now, I never heard this song before, so I was a little worried that it would be some kind of, you know, funny song you know that's like from uh, austin powers that's a man baby right so like, no this is about actually being a real man this song is about standing up and being accountable and standing up and being a real man and i think one of the, the the big problems that we have today with all of the cultural warfare that's gone on is this concept that like you shouldn't even say something like that that's offensive that's saying saying that women are weak or whatever you know or you're assuming a gender or whatever no one's assuming a gender you are a dude or you are a chick you can pretend to be whatever you want you can live however you want I will endorse your decision. I will not get in your way, but I will not feed your your mental delusion that you are not what you are. But what we're talking about here is about the traditional concept 
of a man being a man from the standpoint of your word is your bond. And no matter how hard things get, when people you love are depending on you, you do whatever it takes to take care of them. You know what? That damn well could be a theme song to the Survival Podcast. It really could. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Saw a story on the local news last night about one more struggling single mother. She was talking about how hard it is getting by with no help, no money, no nothing from the baby's father. Made me think about this guy I know with a wife and a child who's working two jobs just to get by. Yeah, he says he'd do anything he could in this world just to give his young family a better life. Yeah, better life. Over there fighting for their country Man, they're gonna be friends forever Well, they both come back eventually But as bombs and destiny would have it They don't come back together They're the one who lived to tell about Why he can't even talk about it Keeps fighting that fight up there in his head And the day goes by He don't wonder why Why it wasn't me instead It could have been me instead Share the collection plate, man.